0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson.
1: Our presentation tonight is called The Afterlife and Communicating with the Dead. Now, you remember from last week, we discovered that death was a what? Death was a sleep. And it's not until the second coming of Jesus Christ that the righteous, God's people, are given immortality and incorruptibility. We don't actually have an immortal soul. You remember, we talked about this last week. Indeed, indeed, no person possesses immortality. As I said, it happens at the time of Christ's return. This is the clear testimony throughout the Christians. Nevertheless, there are Christians, teachers, pastors, ministers, Reverends who teach and preach that we have an immortal soul, we have this divine spark in us, and as a consequence, when we die, whether go straight to heaven or we go to straight to hell for eternity. My old church, my old church, the Presbyterian church, taught the self same thing. I grew up believing these teachings, but what we've already discovered that that is just not biblical at all then what do we do with those passages that seem to challenge uh, what I've presented to you last week and what you've had an opportunity to review over the, over this last week? Um, what do we do with those passages which, which seem to uh, state that there is life immediately after death? Or what do we do with those passages which talk about perhaps somebody going to a place called hell? Well, the first thing that we're going to be uh, discussing tonight is that dialogue that Jesus had, or one of the first things we're going to be looking at tonight is that dialogue that Jesus had with the thief on the cross. Because these are troublesome verses, but it's very interesting when you study them closely. They're not as troubling as one thinks. The other one, of course, is found in Luke chapter 16. Uh, it's called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and that too has been a troublesome text to some. But when we study it right, when we understand the historical context, it makes good sense. And you remember in that uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one goes to heaven and one goes straight to hell. So we're going to explain that very clearly and very simply, and it will make good sense sense now just to refresh you I'm going to do a very quick and I say a very quick revision of what we've discovered so far and looked at last week particularly for example the words of the apostle Paul describing the second time, second coming of Christ in a way which could never be construed as secretive he says this for the Lord himself will descend from where will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall do what? The dead in Christ will rise first. It's talking about the righteous there. They will be resurrected. And then it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. There's a few things that we learn from this. First, first thing is that when Jesus comes back, he doesn't come in secret. Secondly, uh, when Jesus Christ comes back, the, the righteous who are alive at the time of Christ's second coming and the righteous who are in the graves are resurrected. They're gathered up To meet the Lord in the air. And the other thing that we realize from this passage is certainly that the righteous are not rewarded at death and they're not punished at death. Or the wicked are not punished at death. The righteous are rewarded at the time of Christ's second coming. And this is the simple testimony of the scripture. Everything revolves around what happens at the second coming of Christ as far as a reward or otherwise as far as people are concerned. In Job chapter 7 verse 9 we read this, As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. Now when we studied this passage last week, this is identifying the fact that People cannot come back and haunt someone's home. Even if somebody hates and despises someone, if somebody says, I'm placing a curse on you, they're not going to come back. They cannot come back to this world. They cannot come back... I shouldn't say come back to this world because they're actually, they're still in this world. They're in the graves, but they're not able to come back and haunt a house or they're not able to, to uh, be an entity which, which annoys you. That's not what the Bible teaches all. The Bible is very clear. It's authoritative. It's the word of God. And it says that those people do not come back. They remain asleep in the grave. And there's a lot of confusion about this whole idea about communicating with the dead and communicating with a spirit being but the Bible says that only God has immortality. Mankind does not have innate immortality. In fact, the Apostle Paul in his letter to, the, uh, to Timothy makes it very clear. He says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Mankind is mortal, subject to death. God alone is immortal, And then in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read this, Which in his time he shall show who is the blessed and the only potentate and the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. See... As I said, we are subject to death. We are mortal. God alone is immortal. Nevertheless, Christians still teach and are being taught that we have immortal souls and that death we go to heaven and at uh, death we we go to hell this is what we're being taught uh, christians are being taught they're also taught that that we have a soul that we have this immortal soul but we discovered last week as we studied the king james and also the new king james version that a soul just refers to a person you like you or I everything that makes up a person our character our personality if you like um, our appearance everything that makes us the people we are our conscience everything uh, the whole sum total of a person is the soul this is what the Bible clearly testifies to it's not some divine spark within us that continues to exist after death we are our sum total are a soul you only have to look at Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 it says behold all souls are mine the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine the soul whose sins shall do what the soul who sins shall die the understanding in Christianity today is that a soul can never die it just lives on but the Bible says a soul that is a person is does die. And we know that men and women do die. We're mortal, subject to death. Uh, We use the the word uh, soul referring to person just in our colloquial language. For example, we'll say uh, when we went to the shops, there wasn't a soul to be seen anywhere, just meaning that there were very few people around. It was unusually quiet. Uh, we use the same type of language in referring to aeronautical ac- accidents or navigational accidents when it talks about the amount of people who were lost. It says, you know, 146 souls were lost at sea, this sort of language. But the Bible uses the word soul to to identify a person as we do in our colloquial language as well in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 we read this then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 what souls were added to them or added to the church now when it says 3,000 souls what is that referring to again it is just referring to To people. There's nothing strange, it's nothing unusual. Just means that a person is a soul. The other thing that we learnt is that at death, a person actually sleeps in the grave. There's no consciousness in the grave. We actually discovered that the word death and sleep are synonymous. They mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably. Remember, cemetery just refers to the sleeping place. That's all the word cemetery actually means. In Psalm 146, verse three and four, we read this, put not your trust in princes, nor in the son of man in whom there is no help." His breath goes forth. He returneth to his earth. Remember, we saw in the beginning that God created man from the dust of the earth and we saw the breath of life came into his nostrils. The, the, the reverse is true of death. When we die, we just go back to the elements that we were. The breath, the spark of life is removed from us. The lights go out. This is what it's talking about here. His breath goes forth. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish so the breath the life force that animates the body that gives us a consciousness and awareness of time and space it's gone it disappears and therefore the light goes out there's no more consciousness there's no more communing There's none of that those things. Even when living relatives pray or when living relatives go by the the sides of the graves where the dead are are buried, the people in the graves, they don't know anything about it because they're unconscious. They are asleep in the grave. In Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse five, we read this For the living know that they will what? The living know that they will die. Do you know that you're going to die? Of course you do. If Jesus Christ doesn't come back in our lifetime, we're all going to die. But it says the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? The dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is what? Forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy has now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Very clear, isn't it? Very clear indeed. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. It simply says that when a person dies, they have no knowledge in the grave. There's no consciousness at death. We cannot communicate with the dead. Therefore, the dead cannot communicate with us at all. In fact, in the book of Psalms, chapter six, verse five, for in death, there is no remembrance of you in the grave. Who will what? Who will give you thanks? See, even in death, there is no remembrance in the grave. One would think if the righteous went straight to heaven let's pretend let's play a game that they have an immortal soul that they go straight to heaven of course they would be praising and thanking God but here in this text here we've read that that's simply not the case nobody praises God why because their knowledge their love everything that their remembrance of all things has perished because they are asleep in the grave let's look at this next text now it's found in Job chapter 14 and verse 12 it says so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens no more when are the heavens no more when does the sky recede as a scroll when does the moon not give its light when is the sun dark and when do the stars fall from heaven when does that all happen at the second coming of christ so job is using second coming language here it says they will not awake nor be roused from their what nor be roused from their sleep. The Bible uses the word death and sleep interchangeably. I'm just doing a quick revision of what we looked at last week. In verse 14, 21 of Job, it says, his sons come to honor and he knoweth it not they are bought low, but they perceive it not of them. In other words, when the people weep and mourn at the graveside, those in the graves have no idea what's going on. Why? Because in the graves there is no remembrance of anything. According to the Old Testament, when a person dies, it's acknowledged and identified as sleep. It's identified as a dreamless sleep, a time of unconsciousness until the time of the resurrection. The same is true of the New Testament. In fact, you'll remember that last week I looked at an episode in Jesus' life uh, when his friend Lazarus was sick and he eventually died. And Jesus was told about the fact that uh, Lazarus was sick, but he delayed his return to Bethany. And when he makes a decision to go to Bethany, Bethany, he has this discussion with his disciples, if you like. He says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. But they said, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall do well. However, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep and then said Jesus unto them plainly. What are those words there? Lazarus is dead. Jesus said Lazarus is dead but earlier he used the expression sleep to define the death state. He said that Lazarus was asleep. In fact when we read this passage here recorded in John we see that Jesus uses the term death and sleep interchangeably. In fact in John chapter 6 Jesus hammers this point home over and over again that death is asleep and people wait until the second coming for their reward. This is the will of my father who sent me that of all he has given me I shall lose what? I shall lose nothing but should raise it up when? At the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is in voice 40 now, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up when? At the last day. Okay, the next passage, it reads in John chapter six and verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up when? At the last day day the expression Jesus uses over and over and over again is I will raise him up at the last day Jesus is really trying to make a point here isn't he he's really highlighting the fact that at death a person isn't rewarded and a person isn't punished at death A person waits in the grave and they wait until the last day to have eternal life when Jesus Christ returns. So the reward doesn't happen at death. Therefore, the punishment of the lost, the punishment of the wicked, the rebellious, also doesn't happen at death either. Now, what I want to do is I want to take us to the first of these troublesome texts. Uh, This is a text which on first reading may give the impression that Jesus is contradicting everything else that the Bible teaches about death a asleep. In fact, when you read it, you may think that Jesus is actually saying that when you die, you actually go straight to heaven. This is the episode with the thief on the cross. Jesus, you'll remember, has been arrested. He has been brutalized. And there on the Friday afternoon, we call it Good Friday. The Bible calls it the preparation day. We see that Jesus has been nailed to the cross among two thieves. And you remember the thieves are verbally attacking Jesus. But then the lights come on in one, one of the thieves' minds. And he remembers that even though he and his companion were struggling, cursing and swearing, Jesus did not. He recognised that there was something different about Jesus that he didn't react the way normal people were reacting, and there was something that that he saw in Jesus, and it was the Holy Spirit that were convicting both thieves on the cross that Jesus was the Messiah, but only one of those thieves responded so what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage it's found from Luke chapter 23 and we read on from verse 39 through to 42 or thereabouts and you'll understand why some people will say that this supports uh the immortal soul that when you die you go straight to heaven all right here we go we're beginning then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying if you are the Christ save yourself and us But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, here's the line. Here's the words of Jesus. He says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in where? You'll be with me me in paradise. Now, people have concluded from this statement of Jesus that Jesus was affirming the fact or saying that when you die you go straight to heaven. Jesus says there, he said, Sure assuredly I say to you, you'll be I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So they say, There it is. Jesus wouldn't make a mistake like that. He wouldn't make a mistake at all. He's saying today you will be with me in in paradise. In other words, you will be with me when I go to heaven that day, being Friday, vis-a-vis the reward into paradise. But the interesting thing here is a sentence's meaning can be changed by punctuation. You know that, don't you? Where you put an apostrophe can change the whole meaning of a verse. For example... In this passage, we read, And Jesus said unto him, Assuredly, I say unto you, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that seems to imply that on the day that Jesus speaks these words, they will be in paradise together. But look what happens when we move the comma. It says this, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now, how does that change the meaning of the statement by moving the comma after the word today? Well, it simply means this, that Jesus is saying, on this day, I promise you that you're going to be in paradise with me rather than saying today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you understand? A comma changes the meaning of a sentence in a remarkable way. Uh, For example... In this one, a woman, comma, without her, man is nothing. What is it saying here? Well, it's saying a woman, without her, a man is nothing. But notice what happens when we change the position of the paragraph. A woman, without her, man is nothing. Now, the emphasis goes on the value of the man rather than the value of the woman. It's because we've simply changed the position of the the comma, The position of the comma makes all the difference. Now, I hope you can see this. In verse 43 and verse 44, you can clear the difference. It says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the meaning there is that on this day, you'll be with me in paradise. But when we move the comma after the word today, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus is making the declaration, the statement, the promise today that he will be with him in paradise, not on that day, but in some time sometime in the future. Now, what people have to understand is that the Greek and the Hebrew were written originally without any commas, without any punctuation whatsoever. It wasn't until we get to the 11th and the 12th century that the medieval church, the Roman Catholic Church and the scholars alike, they actually added punctuation in. And therefore the meaning of this verse has been skewed by the position of the the comma. But how do we know where where to put the comma? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. When Jesus was on the cross with the, uh, the thieves on either side, would Jesus have instructed the thief with information or, or doctrine that was contrary to the rest of the Bible? Would he have done that? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have done that at all. Secondly, would Jesus say something with the intention of misleading someone, knowing that he wasn't going to be in paradise that day and the thief wouldn't be in paradise that day? Again, no, he wouldn't do that at all. Remember, Jesus did not ascend into paradise or jesus didn't go to heaven on good friday the bible is very clear about that because you remember mary came to the tomb on the first day of the week the day we call easter sunday and what did jesus say in john chapter 20 verse 14 jesus saith unto her touch me not this is to mary touch me not for i have not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren And say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Jesus says, touch me not. Why did he say that? Because he'd not yet ascended to his Father. You see, we know that Jesus Christ slept in the tomb from Good Friday all the way through to Sunday morning on the first day of the week. The Bible says that he rose on the first day of the week. Jesus did not ascend to heaven on Good Friday, neither did the thief go to heaven on Good Friday. It's just as simple as that. Jesus tells us this and it's very clear from the language he uses when he's addressing Mary. Furthermore, neither did the thief, as I've already said, he didn't go to heaven. How do we know? Well, simply because of this reason. In the Bible it tells us when the guards came to uh, inspect the bodies they were asked to take the bodies down off the cross because the Jews had a tradition that was um, a sin to leave bodies on the cross or on hanging on a tree over the sabbath hours so what do the guards do they come They come to the thieves and what do they do first is they break the legs of the thieves. Why? Because they were still alive and they didn't want them to escape. They didn't want them not to be punished. So they broke their legs so they could not escape. But when they went to Jesus, what did they do? The Bible says that they didn't break the legs of Jesus. They simply put a spear up under his ribs. And the Bible says that the spear penetrated his heart. And it was evidence to the guards that Jesus was truly dead in every sense of the word. So Jesus didn't go to paradise on Good Friday. So when Jesus spoke, he said to the thief on the cross, Verily, verily, I say to you today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, what Jesus was saying here, I may not look it, even though I've been beaten, even though I've been bludgeoned, even though I've been battered, I may not look like a king, I may not look like the Messiah, but I promise you this day, listen to me, I promise you this day that you will be in paradise with me. It all depends Where the comma is put. And if the comma is put after the word today, it is consistent with the meaning of the entire Bible about the resurrection, about death is asleep, and the reward in the last day. Does that make sense? Think about it in this way somebody you love dies, they go immediately to heaven or you die and you go immediately to heaven. As people teach who have uh, accepted the immortal soul concept, uh, I was taught this, as I said, as a Presbyterian, growing up in the Presbyterian church, and that when you die, you go straight to heaven or you'll go straight to hell. Imagine that you actually went to heaven when you died. Imagine that. And you can see your wife and your children weeping and crying beside the grave. Imagine being in heaven and seeing everything that goes on on the earth and things that impact your family because this is what the immortal soul concept teaches and uh, supposes that when you die you'll continue on in consciousness either in heaven or in hell if you're in heaven you can see everything that's going on and you can communicate with your family at times and in fact using a spirit medium is a more effective way for you to communicate that's if we believe this um uh a fallacious teaching about the immortal soul, which we don 't, but the reality is if, if, if imagine this if you did die, you did go to heaven and immortal soul was correct, and you could see everything going on, you could see all the bad things that happen to your family. imagine seeing your um, wife have a car accident and she becomes a paraplegic who 's going to look after the children or imagine watching the home uh, and you see one night there 's a man there trying to open the window to enter the bedroom of your children I mean that wouldn't be heaven at all that would be hell and that's why the Bible says that God puts us to sleep we rest from our labors in fact this is recorded in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13 it says this and I heard a voice from heaven saying right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth yea saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them here is the promise of scripture that God's people and the wicked in fact they all rest from their labors they're asleep in the grave there is no consciousness and it's in God's mercy that he puts us to sleep at death so that we don't see the pain and suffering that happens in our family that we don't see the, the the tedious horrible uh, um, experiences that some people are exposed to. God's people are asleep. Everybody is asleep in the grave and they have no awareness of what is happening on earth. And God's people... The good people they truly rest from their life work because God remembers them. He does not forget them, even though they're in the grave. They are not forgotten. Their commitment to Jesus Christ, their commitment to other people, is not forgotten. And God testifies to this in this passage in John uh, Revelation chapter fourteen, verse thirteen, where it says that they may rest from their work, their labors, and their works follow them. When it says there, their works follow them. That's just the promise of the reward that comes to them at the time of Christ's second coming. All right, so let's move on now. We've dealt with the thief on the cross. We understand it's the position of the comma. Now we come to the second troublesome text. It's found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It's commonly known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you'll remember... That in the New Testament, for those of you and I know there's quite a few of you here who are not, but for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, the Pharisees were a group of religious zealots. They encouraged separation from the world. They they were what we would identify as extreme ultra fundamentalists today. They actually advanced the whole concept about separation from the world and the things in the world, but In Luke chapter 16, Jesus presents a parable which is to challenge a long held belief of the Pharisees. You see, in the Pharisees' minds and in many Jews' minds, they believe that riches were a sign of God's honor and God's uh, favor, and that poverty was a sign of God's frown, and the curse of God was upon the poor. So Jesus presents this parable to correct this error which was prevalent through Judaism and also a second error. There was a man by the name of Philo, a brilliant man. He was a contemporary of Jesus Christ but he was very much influenced by the Platonic schools of thoughts in Athens and particularly in Alexandria and he had brought this concept into Judaism and he was the prime mover if you like that uh, people at death go straight to their reward at death so Jesus came to present this parable to deal with those twin arguments one that riches were a sign of God's favor and two that when you die you go straight to heaven all right so let's find out now let's let's read on now before we do what is a parable what is a parable? Well, a parable is just a short narrative, either to highlight a spiritual or a moral truth. And we read here in this parable, this very famous ar- allegory, that there is a man, a rich man. He's a selfish rich man. And there's a man at his gate and a poor man. And he refuses to share any of his abundance with this poor man. His name is Lazarus. So, The other thing that you need to know in relation to this parable as well, it was a very familiar parable at the time of jesus it had actually come from the platonic schools of alexandria it had made its way in and it was a it was something that everyone many people were familiar with particularly the pharisees so what does jesus do he uses something that is familiar that has a corrupted teaching and he uses something familiar and brings the truth out i want you to notice the way jesus does this here as we read in luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared what what's that word say sumptuously every day but there was a certain beggar named lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table moreover the dogs came and licked his sores so it was that the beggar died all right so what have we read so far that there's this rich man and he's, he's feasting sumptuously and there's a man at the gate who's a poor man Lazarus and he's been begging for food but the rich man gives him nothing. The Bible actually says that even the dogs come and lick this man's sores he's in such a de- deprived state but let's read on now we've learnt that he died and this Lazarus now it says was carried by the angels to where? Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus where? In his bosom. Do you get what's happened so far? The rich man's in torments in Hades and uh, uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. He's in paradise. Let's read on. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us so the rich man says Abraham father Abraham uh, send Lazarus just with a dip of water just with a tip of water on his tongue so he can ease my torments here what's the reply it can't happen because there's a gulf and we can't go from here to there or there to here let's read on then he said I beg you therefore father that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have, what What does it say there? Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if one goes to them from the dead they will repent but he said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they persuaded though one rise from the dead as we reflect on this parable parable It says nothing about an immortal soul leaving the body, which is what proponents of this view teach. It talks about Lazarus bodily going to his reward in Abraham's bosom. It talks about, the rich man, bodily, going down to torments. He has eyes, he has tongue, he has taste, all these sort of things. This is not consistent with the teaching of the immortal soul because the immortal soul concept is that we become spirits when we die. So the spirit goes to hell or the spirit goes to heaven. You see, if this, liter- if this narrative was to be taken literally, we would see that the good and the bad go to their rewards as full bodily beings. So we can't, we, first of all, we can't take this as a literal uh, parable. It's got to be taken symbolically. It's figurative as something else. You cannot say that this supports the immortal soul concept at all. Uh, in fact, it actually contradicts the immortal soul concept because when we think about uh, this teaching here, it also talks about the reward of of Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom. Now, wait a moment. Sounds like a very cramped place. Wouldn't you agree? If all the righteous go to Abraham's bosom, it's going to be a very a cramped place so again it cannot be taken literally this parable here cannot support the concept of a mortal soul because we know the dead sleep in the graves and are resurrected at the time of Christ's second coming or the righteous are resurrected at the time of Christ's second coming so what is the lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from this parable and what was the lesson that he wanted the Pharisees to learn well let's read on well let's reread what we've already read But he said to them in verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus said here in this parable, as Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to believe an astounding miracle if one was to rise from the dead. Now, when it talks about Abraham and the prophet there, prophets uh, Moses and the prophets it's talking about that which is found in the Old Testament writings the first five books of the Bible are attributed and rightly so to Moses and also the book of Job but also the prophets it refers to the book of Psalms and it, for, it refers to all the Old Testament prophets as well and Jesus is saying here that if they do not believe In Moses and the prophets they're not even going to believe one though he rise from the dead remember the Pharisees were the chief antagonists who were constantly trying to trick and trap Jesus to say to get him to say something that he that could be used against him and even though that they'd heard reports that Jesus had brought people from the dead even though some of the Pharisees may have even seen Jesus bring people back from the dead such as the son of the widow of Nain and then there was Jairus's daughter uh, then the future uh, resurrection of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, as well. They'd seen, they'd experienced all those things. Uh, but Jesus is saying here that if they don't believe that, then they're not going to believe a miracle, an outstanding miracle, even though one was to come from the dead. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was convicting them what is truth and they were resisting what is truth. Their hearts were becoming hardened. And Jesus says, if they, don't, if they do not believe what the inspired word of God says, then they're not going to believe, even though a notable miracle of someone rising from, from the dead, that won't be enough evidence for them either. It might have an initial impact, but it will not serve a long-term purpose. And that was the lesson that Jesus was giving there because Jesus is reminding the Pharisees to go back into the Bible back into what we call the Old Testament which was the Bible of Jesus's day which was the Bible of Paul's day because within those pages of Holy Writ there are over 300 prophecies which identified who the Messiah was and Jesus is drawing their intention back to the Bible so that they would be satisfied that Jesus himself was the Messiah. Messiah the long promised Messiah you know this was a, a very popular parable at the time of Jesus but Jesus uses this parable with all of its error something that's commonly and well known to bring out a higher moral truth trust in the Bible it's inspired by God and it is that which speaks of him remember this also that in the Pharisees' minds, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's, God's uh, smile upon them, God's favour, and that wealth was a sign that the frown of God was upon people. No, sorry, that, that poverty was a sign that uh, God's frown was upon people. But Jesus checked that error. And he was highlighting to the Pharisees also at this, in this parable here that covetousness will not be rewarded greed and avarice is not going to be rewarded and in fact when it comes to the poor Jesus said to the righteous he says do what you can for the poor they may not respond in the way you want them to some will but some may not respond the way that you want them to but it doesn't matter and why because Jesus says this in Luke chapter 14 verse 14 he says and thou shall be blessed for they cannot recompense thee for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of when? The resurrection of the just. So Jesus says, do good works among the poor. They may not respond to you, but what you are doing is you are preparing the ground before you in order that when Jesus Christ comes back, that you will be rewarded at the coming of the just. If our minds were to go back, over the Old Testament and I was to ask you who do you think would be the prime candidates for eternal life Uh, vis-a-vis let's say go straight to heaven let's play a game let's pretend that when a person dies they go straight to heaven who would be the candidates to go straight to heaven if that was the truth anybody all right so Abraham good thank you Okay. Jacob. Yes. Some of the prophets. All right. Now, did, did I hear David? Who said David? All right. David. David was the one I was thinking of. In the book of Chronicles, it tells us that David was perfect in God's own ways. Now, we may say, wait a moment. David was a man who Murdered. David was a man who committed adultery. David did many wrong things. How can the Bible possibly say that he was a man after God's own heart? And it's because of this reason. Because when you look at the history of the Israelite kings, you'll see that all of them, basically all of them, uh, with the exception of a few, they all turned to the pagan gods around them. Even when David was in the pit of despair, he remained faithful to God. Even when he did the wrong things, he prayed to God and he confessed his sins to God that's what it's talking about there so the bible says that god that david was perfect in all his ways why because he confessed his sins and he was forgiven and he didn't he didn't drift away from worshiping god so david is a person if what we talk about, uh, what we're talking about here, is if a person goes straight to heaven at death. Obviously, David would be a prime candidate for that. But what does it say in the book of Acts? This is the apostle Peter. He says this, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is, is with us unto this day. Wait, where's David? Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit which he was at that point in time he says that David is both dead and buried furthermore in verse 34 he says for David is not ascended into the heavens again he's checking this error among the Jews that when you died you go straight to heaven influenced by the platonic schools of thought and philo and others he says David didn't ascend to heaven but he's in the grave, he's waiting. You see, the clear testimony of the Bible is that there's no consciousness in death, the dead cannot communicate, the righteous wait in the grave until the second coming of Christ when they are given immortality at that point in time. Does that make sense? Put up your hand if you understand that we cannot communicate with the dead because the dead are asleep. Put up your hand. God bless you all. God bless you. Put up your other hand if you believe now, after the study of the Bible, that the righteous are rewarded at the second coming of Christ. God bless you all. God bless you. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your close attention again again tonight. I couldn't hear a pin drop. I heard a few little children over the back and just here in the front. But that's great. We love families being here. But I want to thank you for your close attention. Remember, as you go out tonight to receive your study guides, to receive your material, um, and uh, also you're going to get the uh, memory stick, which has the first four presentations that I shared with you uh, on this uh, very important series as well you're going to be receiving them. They're absolutely free. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask me, uh, write them down on the uh, the card that's uh, in your lap now that you have there, and uh, I'll do what I can to answer those questions, either prior to the presentation next week or uh, at some other time, perhaps over over the internet or email or something like that. Now, Uh, Next week, our presentation is called The 1,000 Years of Desolation. Now, again, there's a lot of confusion in the Christian world about the 1,000 years. Some people believe it's during the 1,000 years, the righteous will reign on the earth with Jesus Christ. Well, we're actually going to see that the Bible says something different, but in fact, it turns out to be incredibly good news. Um, For those of you who are watching on the internet, YouTube, live streaming this presentation, you can get this information by going to the the address, which is up on the screen, theorchardmelbourne.org.au. Go to the section, contact us, and we will send the materials of this presentation and others out to you, including the free handouts. Well, thank you everyone for being here tonight. And why don't we close in prayer just as we uh, go prior to going our separate ways. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness. We thank you for the truth of your words. And I pray as we uh, contemplate what we've studied tonight, that people will understand that it's through mercy that you put us to sleep so that we don't see the sufferings and and the pain and the turmoil that a death leaves behind that we don't see our loved ones in financial problems or injuries that may happen we just want to acknowledge you father because you know best you put the dead to sleep and their reward comes at the second coming and we thank you for that we want to praise your name father and we thank you again for jesus christ our lord and savior and it's in his dear name that we pray amen
0: This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Casey Butler, and I want to talk to you today about weeds, walls, and want. What was that you said? Weeds, walls, and want. It's something that King Solomon observed and talked about. Now, who was King Solomon? Well, he was the son of King David in the Bible, and he was given special wisdom by God. So much of it that throughout history he is known as the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon's life is characterized by, in his early days, being someone who was very faithful and true to God. But he eventually turned right away from God in his life and then only towards the end of his life did he come back to God. He learned a lot Throughout his life, he wrote a number of books and he wrote also an extensive number of proverbs. Apparently, he spoke 3,000 of them and many of them are recorded in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs. It's interesting what a proverb actually is and the Oxford Dictionary defines it as "...a short, well-known, pithy saying that expresses a general truth or piece of advice." And we are going to actually look at one of Solomon's Proverbs a little bit later. Solomon was very observant. You can tell from what he writes about that he observed many things in nature, you know, animals, um, agriculture, insects, the weather. He also observed things like tools and work He observed the human body, he observed human behavior and relationships and wrote about and learned many lessons and important things about um, what he saw. And this brings us to when one day Solomon observed weeds, walls and want. And it stood out to him so much that he recorded what he saw and then wrote what he learned from it. And we find this in Proverbs chapter 24, Verse 30 to 34. And it says this I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of a man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw, and considered it well. I looked upon it, and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Well, that's what he saw and that's what he learned from it. How did Solomon determine that this man was slothful? He says he went by the field of the slothful. Well, it seems plain that he he worked that out based on what he saw the condition of the man's living quarters were. You know, it's place all covered with weeds and the wall was in disrepair. And just based on that the fact that it was so unkempt, he was able to determine that this man who lived this place was Slothful, And what else does he say? He says void of understanding. That means without understanding. This man had, you know, just didn't quite understand what was really important in life. So what did he think about all of this that he saw? Well, he wrote a lesson carefully. And what did he say? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So I guess in today's terms, we could think of this as a little bit of laziness here, a little bit of uh, procrastination or um, just carelessness here and there. Yeah, doesn't matter too much. That's what what would be the attitude that he is trying to um, convey. And he is saying that eventually this kind of attitude will eventually catch up on a person. He says, So shall thy poverty come as one that travelleth. Now, if people... If someone's travelling and they just happen to turn up at your place, you would say that that came fairly unexpectedly, wouldn't you? So, it seems like he's saying that when when we have these habits of, I don't know, a bit of carelessness here, a bit of carelessness there, laziness here and there, eventually trouble is going to end up catching up on us and it's going to come rather suddenly in a way that we don't expect. And then he says also that thy want or thy thy poverty would come as an armed man. Now, an armed man is someone who has a weapon and so, and obviously then has the potential to do harm. So we would think then that the poverty that comes or the trouble that comes to someone like this will actually harm them and you can you can imagine that if this man's house was all covered with weeds and if it's all covered with weeds probably food crops wouldn't have been growing so well so he may this this slothful man may well have gone hungry and that would have done him harm so that's how well that's just an obvious example of how it could do this man harm so what can we learn from this about today How how can we apply this lesson in today's living culture? Well, let's think about our homes, our rooms, where we live. Do you think if Solomon came by your place today, would it look like the lazy man's field? Bits and pieces, unkempt everywhere and looking like it hadn't been touched for an awfully long time. Or is your place in order and organized and the impression that people see when they look on it is, and oh, that place is well well kept and up to date what about your work habits do you you know miss bits here and there and maybe leave some jobs unfinished here and there and it just all seems to go like that in terms of your work ethic what about wasting a bit of time here and there just being a bit careless in terms of how we spend our time these kind of habits according to Solomon they can get us into trouble when we least expect because they all just add up on each other you know it's interesting that Solomon's little proverb here his lesson that he learned from this experience about um, the lazy man It's actually repeated in the book of Proverbs in another chapter. It's actually repeated in chapter six. And it's in the context he's talking about the ant, where it says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer or ruler, Provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. So here Solomon has observed the ant and he sees how industrious and persevering the ant is. He doesn't waste any time, he just sets his mind on the task that it has to do and just keeps working hard till it's accomplished. And then there's no poverty for the ant because he has meat for himself in the summer and food in the harvest. And Solomon gives that as an example of what we can do instead of the lazy man and what he did. So I encourage you to think about your life, think about your habits, and think about whether they're more similar to the lazy man with his weeds, walls, and want, or whether they're more like the ant with its diligent industriousness. And wherever you find yourself to be, Go for the ant. God bless. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.